go ahead and find our seats again. So glad you are here in this room and joining us in online. If you don't know me already, my name is Steve and I am the senior pastor here. Um, and in light of everything that has been going on in Davis, because there's been a hubbub, hasn't there? Um, many are understandably relieved with the apprehension of the one suspected of the behind the rash of stabbings that, that we had. And some are still shaken, uh, maybe some of us here in this room, but certainly in our community. And so even though our whole church does not, is not just exclusively Davis, we want to pray for ourselves, pray for Davis, um, because we're one community of many communities that are represented here, right? West Sac, uh, Woodland, and Winters, and Dixon, along with Davis as well. So I thought it would be a good idea for us to pray for one another and to pray for our town. So let's pray, shall we? Uh, God, we are simply relieved. We're, re we're really just grateful. Grateful to the police who are usually invisible to us. Grateful that our community is safer. We're grateful for how you have orchestrated that and, and kept us safe. And in this aftermath, uh, you know, nerves were high and now we're kind of just trying to recover from being shaken. Um, and I pray you make your presence and your peace uh, undeniable in us, through us. Show us more of what it takes, what it looks like to, for us to put our lives in your hands as our rock and our fortress. As the one who is with us through all manners of troubles now even, and that will one day make everything okay at the end of the age. And to that end, we pray that you would use this scripture this morning Help us now to hear from you and to do what you are telling us to do. And we'll thank you for what fruit comes as a result of you meeting with us this morning and teaching us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we are in a sermon series called Hidden Figure because we're looking at the story of Esther in the Old Testament. It's a story about her rise from obscurity to the very throne of that world's superpower in the day. How she became a heroine, in fact, to her fellow Jewish people, reversing their fortunes from one of what was doom and gloom to one that was security and blessing. But it all came about because of God. God as this hidden figure behind the scenes of the story to the point that the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible that does not mention the name of God directly. And so in many ways, Esther lives like you and I do, uh, without seeing dramatic miracles all the time, incredible visions of God coming to us, you know, audible words from the Lord. She has to live by faith that God is always at work, behind the scenes, for her good, and to accomplish his purposes in the absence of him being obviously on the scene with her. Now, thus far, we've entered into her world and we've seen her story, how it's controlled by this very dangerous king of Persia, the Persian Empire. His name was King Ahasuerus, or also more popularly known as King Xerxes. And we've ridden along with Esther on her journey from obscurity to marrying the king and becoming queen along with city, the one sitting in her sidecar, if you will, Mordecai, her cousin and adoptive father, who also serves in that royal court. And last week, Bronwyn took us on a bit of a detour, an excursus on beauty, because 
Beauty is a huge theme in Esther um, and a thread that actually is tied to the rest of Scripture, which she unpacked beautifully for us. She did a great job. And today, we're actually diving back into the story and we're going to be introduced to the last major character in Esther's story, a man named Haman. Uh, He was a man of tremendous power and tremendous importance. In a manner of speaking, Haman has the power and importance of an American president, uh, like President Theodore Roosevelt, if you will. That's him pictured at Sagamore Hill. It's on the north side of Long Island. And while he was in president, he lived, in, he lived there in the summers. So much so that it became known in his day as the Summer White House because he used to host luminaries from the country. Uh, foreign dignitaries from around the world. And one such regular to the Summer White House was this man, a man named William Beebe. Uh, He was a famed naturalist at the time, and he led scientific expeditions abroad all over. And William Beebe used to share that he and then-President Roosevelt would play a little game together at Sagamore Hill. What they do is, after going after an evening of talking, They would go outside and they would go out onto the lawn there on Sagamore Hill and they would would look underneath this blanket of stars there. Maybe something, you know, a bit like this. And they'd search the sky for this very faint spot of light mist. It was undeniable where it was. It was in the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. Uh, This thing. And then one of them would say, you know, that is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It is as large as the Milky Way. It is one, a hundred million galaxies. It consists of one billion stars, each larger than our own sun. And then after a short pause, President Roosevelt would smile and say, well, now I think we are small enough. Let's go to bed. All right. But who doesn't need that kind of reality check from now and then? Wouldn't you agree? To reset our sense of size. Reset our sense of importance. And this is especially true of all of us who have positions of power. And for those of us who have informal influence and sway over people around us. And for those of us who have better than average gifting in some area or another. Or let me put it it this way. Each and every one of us needs this kind of reality check, don't we? Because we're in danger of having an overinflated sense of self if we let ourselves go. And make no mistake about it, having an overinflated sense of self is an incredibly dangerous position to be in. We're in danger of hurting the people around us. We're in danger of losing relationships we actually want and that we actually need in life. And we're in danger of having our own balloon sense of self be popped and destroying ourselves. In short, we're in danger of losing our life and what makes life worth living. And that is no preacher hyperbole to kind of grab your attention this morning, right? Because there is a hidden figure in all of this that we may not see, that we may not appreciate, that we may not remember, and he opposes the proud. Something we get to see in the story of Haman and how he operates within the greater story of Esther. 
And that means this morning that we need to wrap our heads around this introductory story of Haman because he's a man of power and he's a man with an inflated sense of self. And after we wrap our heads around the story, we're going to need to see two things, what drives him and how this, in fact, loads the dice against him. So grab your Bible, uh, open it or your Bible app on your phone. Find your way to the introduction of Haman. It's going to be in Esther chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. If you open your Bible, you'll probably be right in the middle with Psalms. Just keep going to the left and you'll hit Job. Just keep going to the left and then you'll hit Esther. If you reach for one of those blue Bibles, you're in luck. Esther chapter 3 is on page 411 and you can turn right there right now. Both the story in front of us, Katie McLean is going to read it for us. So let's pay attention, shall we? Esther 3, 1 through 6. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. This is the word of the Lord. Now, that's what happens about five years after the close of chapter 2, after Esther had become queen and had foiled an assassination plot against the king with Mordecai's help that you can read about. But still, this is actually a surprise at this point in the story. Uh, with the Persian king's penchant towards to reward loyalty, we're supposed to expect King Ahasuerus to reward Mordecai right now for foiling this assassination plot. But instead, that's not what happens. We run into a completely different royal promotion that seems to come out of left field. We're, we've never heard about Haman until this point, but the king promotes this guy to the front of the line of his whole royal officials. He's probably the you know, vice regent at this point, a viceroy, a, a prime minister. And so in typical Persian royal court fashion, to mark this social standing and ranking, the king commands everyone to show proper respect to Haman. Bow before him, he says. And everyone in that long line of royal officials do that. Everyone except Mordecai. Now, it could be that Mordecai didn't think Haman deserved it. Could be that. It could be that he was Jewish and he didn't bow before anyone besides God. It, it could be that. But more likely, you and I have unknowingly stumbled into a centuries-long family feud. And I say unknowingly because I doubt it registered with any of us that Haman was identified as Haman the Agagite, right? 
Does anyone know what that means, right? I mean, the, that's code for indicating that Haman was from a family that was a longtime arch enemy of Mordecai's family. And even more broadly, the Agites were, were within a family, within a broader uh, people group called the Amalekites, a people who had been at odds with Israel since the very beginnings of Israel. So for hundreds and hundreds of years, they had this feud going on. Can you see how we stumbled into an infamous blood feud in the ancient world? It's their version of our Hatfields and McCoys, right, who've been arch enemies for years in the Appalachians because someone stole someone else's hog in the 1860s. Or if literature is more of your deal, um, it's the Capulets and the Montagues who simply had an ancient hatred for one another, William Shakespeare said in his tragedy, Romeo and Juliet, in fact, uh, this blood feud is so deep and so generational that even some modern-day Jewish people refer to their enemies as Amalekites. Like this 1994 article from the New York Times, you see, preached a doctrine of to often with the Arab as the biblical enemy Amal Amalek. So Mordecai, refusing to bow, is just another blow in this family feud that has been going on for so long. And this ongoing feud made Mordecai all the more headstrong in refusing to bow. And even with everyone else bowing around him, he, Mordecai just does not want to do it. In fact, his hardening towards doing this is so profound that he ends up reversing his own advice and tells the secret that he's in fact a Jew. And that's why he's not bowing. And does Haman at this point let cooler heads prevail? Oh, no, 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 no. That's why we have a story here, right? When he learns that Mordecai is a Jewish man, Haman escalates this from a personal vendetta. Beyond a retaliation of Mordecai and his family to a genocide of Mordecai's people throughout the Persian Empire. In fact, Haman doesn't just fantasize about this genocidal revenge, fantasizing how he's going to get back, like maybe we tend to do. He actually makes it a reality, which is what happens right after what Katie read to us. With a decision in hand to arrange for the genocide, Mordecai and, and with Mordecai and all of his race, Haman then sets to go about setting a date for this to actually happen. And so... He cast lots, or what the Persians called poor. That's an important detail. Hold on to that detail for the rest of this series, okay? But what they would do would take play, clay cubes like this one, and they'd roll the dice as a way to consult the cosmic forces for guidance. And I know, that sounds very superstitious to our ears, very odd, I get that. But that's how they consulted cosmic forces in Persia. And then with those cosmic forces, they, they, they set a date that's about 11 months into the future. And then Haman takes, leverages his power and his influence to then make it happen. He comes to King Ahasuerus about a strange people that aren't mixing well in the Persian Empire, he says. They have different ethnic practices, King, and they don't obey you. 
He appeals to the king's personal interest without mentioning his own. And Haman even makes a massive bribe that was actually so large it would replace the dent in the king's coffer that he had taken out for his failed invasion of Greece. And surprisingly, King Ahasuerus gives Haman his own signet ring and seals the orders for the genocide of the Jewish people. And I say that's surprising because, for one, Persia was, a very, was normally a very, very tolerant of all kinds of people and all kinds of cultures and preferred to enfold them within the Persian Empire instead of destroying them. And for another, the king even refuses that bribe for the genocide because it seems to suit his purposes. That's how well Haman sold this deal. And so Haman, he gets to work dictating to the edict to the scribes who would write it in every native tongue that was there in the Persian Empire. And then letters were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews. And just in case we miss it, young and old, women and children, in one day. This is horrific. This ranks with some of the most notorious news items in our day. Bosnia, Rwanda, the Sudan, a sampling of which we have been tasting in Davis with what's been going on and the threats that we have felt. No Jewish person is to be spared. No possession they had wasn't up for grabs. In 11 months, it was effectively open season on the Jewish people and their possessions. And the letters went out far and wide into the Persian Empire. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Haman sits in the lap of luxury feeling quite satisfied with himself, but everyone else is bewildered and confused with this edict. What happened to the tolerance, everyone is thinking? What did the Jewish people do to deserve this, they're thinking? And the Jewish people themselves are asking, where are you, God, to protect us from things like this? Everything about Haman's introduction is upside down. The Jewish people are getting what they don't deserve in a genocide. Haman is getting what he doesn't deserve in a promotion, which Mordecai actually did deserve. Esther and Mordecai have to be scratching their heads, feeling incredibly vulnerable and even outraged, just like we would. They're probably asking the same things that you and I would be asking in situations like this. Like, God, where are you? Why are you letting this happen? Don't you care? But before we get to where God is, we have to ask ourselves a question here. About what is driving this whole dynamic of conflict between Haman and Mordecai? What is the root that is driving Haman to do this from a personal vendetta? 
beyond a family vengeful to a genocide. Pride. Hubris. We have in Haman here a case study in hubris. And let me be really clear here, okay? Haman is not simply proud of his family and his ethnicity as an Agite or an Amalekite. He is not just simply taking pride in his work and pleasure in getting recognized with that promotion. Haman has an overinflated sense of self, and so he exhibits the vice of pride. How does he show it? Well, C.S. Lewis is really helpful, in fact, because he's widely recognized as having written some of the best, most insightful stuff when it comes to pride. If you're interested in reading it, a bit of it, in his book, Mere Christianity, he calls it the great sin. It's in book three, chapter eight. He's surgical in his description and diagnosis of pride. But basically what he says is that pride is a set, set apart from every other vice, for essentially how pride is competitive. Competitive by its very nature. Pride doesn't just have pleasure over having something, only having more than the next person. With that in mind, look at Haman. The king promotes him to the second most powerful man in the Persian Empire. He orders everyone to bow down in respect and recognition of that. And everyone in the cabinet does, save one person that he doesn't even notice until other people tell him. Is that level of recognition and respect good enough? Of course not. Haman needs to win and beats everyone, especially the likes of Mordecai. He couldn't possibly enjoy the promotion and the widespread respect that he had without knowing he had put his boot on Mordecai's neck and their family's neck and his people's neck. You see, the vice of pride is essentially competitive with pleasure only coming in having something more than someone else. That hits pretty close to home, doesn't it? It does for me. I mean, how often do we fail to take pleasure in being smart or successful or rich or appreciated or attractive or important? Because you guys are all that. But only insofar as we're actually that in comparison to someone else. I mean, how often do we have to have more likes, more recognition, better ideas, and just more than that other person? How often? Do we find ourselves with a humble brag? You know what I'm talking about? That we lead with in conversation. That we humbly put out there on social media. How often do we take even greater pleasure if we're all of that in comparison to that someone who's rejected us or hurt us? to feel like we won. 
How often do we feel gutted? When we realize we're actually not better, with better ideas and better accomplishments to another, especially that one person who's rejected us and wronged us. This story is a warning to us. Pride is lurking there in us, much like it did with Haman. And then since Haman has tremendous power with that promotion, his hubris is only fueled. His pride inside grows because as C.S. Lewis points out, hubris loves nothing more than the recognized superiority over others and being able to order other other people around. And Haman's pride, it grew monstrously large, ugly inside of him, beyond just a personal superiority with Mordecai, beyond a family superiority with Mordecai and and his tribe, to an ethnic and racial superiority over the Jewish people. It was not enough to have a family dignity or a sense of esteem in his ethnic ethnicity. He has to exclude and squash the whole race and class of people that he counts beneath himself. I mean, this is textbook, textbook racism and prejudice, but it all begins with this root of pride. And that pride, it coupled with his power to give Haman the wherewithal to manipulate the king into making a gen- an edict of genocide. Pride is actually just that destructive if left unchecked. So much so, C.S. Lewis, he wrote this. He said this. He said, pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride always means enmity. It is enmity. Can you see this destruction from pride? Have you ever been on the receiving end of it from someone else? Have you ever experienced it within yourself that actually is what is making you miserable so often that you're not better than that person or treated better than you think? Have you regrettably seen it come from you and your pride to the people around you? You see, pride means destruction within ourselves and around us. But even more devastatingly, C.S. Lewis diagnoses that pride and hubris sets us in a posture of his hostility toward God himself. Um, And it doesn't really matter how many positive feelings we might have about God and thoughts about God, because high hubris or pride, C.S. Lewis reasons, always has to look down on things and people to elevate oneself. And as so long as we're looking down, he says, we cannot look up above, above and see God in heaven in superiority. And we may think it's no big deal. Kind of make it a big deal of this, Steve. Make me feel bad. Yeah. I mean, no harm, no foul with God. I mean, we might even point to Haman here and say, he still wins. Maybe that's something that crossed Esther and Mordecai's mind too. Maybe that fueled some of their own outrage that they must have felt. And we'd all be right about Haman. 
in the short run. You see, there are thin places in this story where it feels like God is going to burst onto the scene to oppose Haman face to face. Except it's actually a place where God loads the dice, if you will, against Haman and his own destruction. I want you to take a closer look at this scene when Haman decides to cast lots to decide the timing of genocide. Uh, Here's what it says in verse 7. It says this. It says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adah. Now, oddly enough, they're in the Persian Empire, but now they're using the Hebrew calendar. And everything in this sounds incredibly strange to our ears, does not? But this is actually a thin place where God is going to burst onto the scene. For one, the date would have stuck out immediately because it was the month of all months for Jewish people. This was a month marking them out as God's people in the Passover. The day God loosed his final and deciding plague upon Egypt that killed every non-Jewish firstborn in the land. So it's a month that God God was celebrated as having delivered his people from slavery and from death in Egypt. And then, as coincidence would have it, if I can put that in air quotes, on the very eve of Passover, the edict that would codify the day that Haman's lots had determined the demise of the Jewish people, that's the day it was written and sent out. And so of all the months that Haman could have cast lots, on all the days when he could have sent out this edict, it ironically happens on Christmas and Easter wrapped into one that teems with overtones and reminders of God's miraculous power to work and deliver his people. And then on top of that, the idea of casting lots was always seen as a place of God's domain. Hold your doubt there. Suspend doubt. Just come with me here. Proverbs says this. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. What we look at as random is, in fact, under God's control. So casting lots for the cosmic forces to weigh in the decision was in fact, in the Jewish mind, in the Jewish kind of thinking, this was God's domain when his people was involved. Now, the church doesn't cast lots today because this was done during a time when there wasn't clear clear guidance of like the scriptures and the spirit. And when the scriptures were only very rare for only a select few people, God turned to other means for guidance. And there was casting lots. You may have heard of it. Urim and Thummim with the priests in the Old Testament. God made allowances for casting lots with priests for guidance in the absence of the clear guidance of Scripture, the clear guidance of the Spirit, which is unnecessary today. Yes, laughable even. I get it. But at this point in God's story, casting lots was always God's domain. All of this goes to say, that this scene of Haman casting lots on this particular day is a thin place where we are supposed to see God is moving, God is stirring, God is working, but he's doing it out of sight just below the surface. 
as this hidden figure providentially guiding all of this for his purposes. And so these Persian dice that Haman uses to determine the date of the Jewish people's extermination, they're loaded. Do you know what I mean by loaded? Right? They're loaded. Haman thinks he's rolling the dice for the Jewish people, but he ends up rolling, you know, snake eyes. Right? And we'll see how that results in him losing everything. But for now, Haman is playing with these loaded dice. And what it does is it kind of cocks the trigger. It's going to tie the noose around his neck. It's going to plant the seeds of destruction in Haman's own life. Or, or let me put it a different way. This is the first domino to fall in a cascading series of dominoes that will end up falling on Haman because pride goes before the fall. Who doesn't know this? Who hasn't seen this played out or experienced a taste of this firsthand? Who doesn't think of the space shuttle Challenger here? NASA was warned about the O-rings and how they could fail below 53 degrees. But they had been so successful in a quarter century of people putting people into space, NASA disregarded it and this happened to the utter disbelief of everyone. Or who doesn't point to the Boston Big Dig to reroute the main highway through a tunnel system in Boston? Every Bostonian does. Every Bostonian does. Because of the initial optimism. We know the construction progress, right? They always take longer, they cost more, but come on. I mean, this was outrageous. Their initial optimism was inflated at best and prideful at worst. It ended up taking nine years longer. It cost $12 billion more, and that doesn't include the interest on all the bonds yet. It's the most expensive highway project yet, and even then, it was marred with tunnel leaks, epic traffic jams, and someone was killed by a cement tile that fell on their car. Now, I'm sure lots of other examples pop into your mind, right? Because pride goes before the fall. But it isn't just a matter of large-scale public falls. This is incredibly personal too, isn't it? When pride shows itself as stubbornness, you know, we celebrate them in the short term for being strong, you know, sticking to their guns. But eventually stubbornness catches up, doesn't it? In the face of necessary changes they just can't make. In the face of losing an argument they just can't win. In the face of a better idea they cannot accept or a mistake that they can't admit to make it right. When, con when pride shows itself in confidence in abilities, confidence in knowledge, confidence in decision-making, we may celebrate them in the short run for their robust ego, right? But eventually, confidence becomes cockiness and catches up with them in the face of failure that sickens their heart. 
in the face of aging that diminishes their capacity and even their sense of worth. You see, Haman is a case study in pride. And pride means destruction within us, around us, and eventually it will be the end of us. And in the face of this kind of warning, C.S. Lewis urges us to begin by simply admitting that pride. That's where he says to start. And what areas we might have an overinflated sense of self. But that's actually only one step. The next step is actually to look further than President Theodore Roosevelt would in the night sky to God himself and see how his greatness was and how low his son would have to go for us. His son wouldn't just go low to the earth, but lower as a peasant among humanity. And still even lower in death with the lowliest of deaths on a cross. And so coming to Jesus actually means a death blow to our pride. When coming to Jesus, we, we begin to ask ourselves, like, how can we dare to compete with others to be better if the greatest of all had to go so low for me and my sin and my flaws and my failure? How can I possibly try to do that? Or how can I possibly exaggerate my sense of self before such greatness of love and greatness of sacrifice that was required for my flaws, required for my tangles, required for my sin. Pride goes before the fall, yes. But faith in Jesus means grace for us in humility and eventually then to be raised up by him. So let's pray that into ourselves, shall we? Let's pray together. God, we come before you and you see our lives. There is nothing that you don't see. We are laid bare before you. And God, in the quietness of our hearts, if there was a place that you kind of pointed at in our soul, this area of pride. We, we bring that to you now just to simply recognize what you have pointed out to us. And God, we are grateful for how that has not simply blown up our lives, blown up our relationships, blown us up. We count that as your kindness to us that we might change. And so we look to Jesus once again, who came in humility and surrendered everything, everything, out of his love for us, out of our need for it, we look at Jesus again that we might follow him where he's gone with the sure expectation that we, we too, will be exalted as you did with Jesus. We trust that you will do this. 
for your glory and for our joy, we pray.